This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. For the latest episode of The Politics of Everything, I'm with Tracy Spicer, who as well as being a talented writer and accomplished TV journalist, is also one of my girl crushes. A few years ahead of me career-wise, I've always looked up to Tracy as she rose the ranks and kept her sense of humour while she fought the hard fight from the front line of commercial TV land, a place where women are still often judged for their appearance more than their quality of reporting. Tracy has recently released a new memoir called The Good Girl Stripped Bear, and I avidly read and nodded and laughed and screamed at the pages along with it, it felt. In this memoir, Tracy exposes her own hardships and her successes on the road to now, including sexual harassment at work, getting divorced, the passing away of her beloved mother and her own sacking from a high-profile commercial TV job while on maternity leave. I'm humbled today to share the microphone with Tracy as we explore the politics of memoirs. Welcome. Thank you, and thank you for that beautiful intro. I hope you didn't scream too loudly, or I hope it was cathartic if you did. It definitely was. So what made you want to write a memoir? I mean, obviously, it's a very raw experience for some people, cathartic for others. Why a memoir? Oddly enough, it was never my dream. I'm a short-form journalist. I like doing 24-hour news or 600-word columns, bash it out, go to sleep that night, wake up and do something entirely different. So the thought of a year-long project was terrifying. But I was really honoured and privileged when a publishing house approached me and said, look, we think you've got a memoir in you and we think it could be a comedy memoir that gets across serious messages. I think the best way to get across uh, some tough lessons is through humour. So I wrote this book around my own journey through television and radio and newspaper over the past 30 years. And I wanted to weave around it some key moments in the women's rights movement, but also some advice for young women entering the workforce about the challenges they might face and how they can tackle that. So take me back to your own childhood in the suburbs of Brisbane where the book kind of starts, if you like. I mean, was a career in journalism always the dream and why TV? It was. I used to love sitting there watching the six o'clock news. Our house would fall silent. Mum and Dad were very passionate about social justice, so we loved watching current affairs programs. And as soon as I saw Yarn Event on television, I thought, I want to be that woman. And I don't think I just wanted to be a news or current affairs host. I think I wanted to be a slight dark-haired woman of Eastern European origin because it was so much more sophisticated than being the bleached-haired bogan chick from Redcliffe. So, you know, when you grow up in a real, I grew up in a really rough area, there weren't that many female role models in the workforce around us, aside from my wonderful mum, who was a fantastic uh, feminist and always a working parent. There weren't that many role models around us that I wanted to aspire to. Excellent. So you describe yourself as a good girl from the beginning of the book. And how did that sort of theme manifest itself throughout your career? What does it really mean to be a good girl? In the era that I grew up, uh, girls were expected to sit there quietly as they got older, not to talk about the nasty business of money, to be the glue in others' conversations, to bring out the scones, to make the cup of tea. You know, that whole CWA thing, right? 
So in the workplace, that manifested with me being at Network 10 for 14 years and never once asking for a pay rise. That is crazy. Crazy. (laughs) In fact, turning around once and saying, oh, actually, I feel privileged to work here, sir. Don't worry about giving me any more money like an idiot. But equally, that good girl thing was reinforced by another boss who said to me, oh, you don't need a pay rise, Tracy. You'll work here for a couple of years, then you'll marry a nice man. He'll look after you and you'll never have to work another day in your life. So television is pretty old-fashioned when it comes to the corporate sector. In a lot of ways, it's still stuck back in the 1950s and 60s. Yes, I do appreciate that. I guess, um, you know, with writing a memoir, do you feel like you kind of end up making a few more enemies along the way because you can't hide behind it being a piece of fiction? Is there kind of a little <laughs> bit of fear in you as you tackle the memoir? Not really. I wanted to be as honest and authentic as possible. I didn't want to make it a name and shame. I've named a handful of people and they're the ones that I thought could really actually learn from the impact that their actions had on others. But broadly, it's more about the structural discrimination in the workplace and not just television, in all workplaces. So in a way, the people I've named are actually characterizations or representations of a lot of superiors that we deal with in the workforce, whether they're deliberately sexist or inadvertently sexist, whether they're sexual harassers or whether they discriminate against women returning from maternity leave. I wanted to put in as many anecdotes as possible so people could say, gosh, that happened to me and that reminds me of my boss. So they can put a name to what they experienced. And I guess um, as a result of the memoir, the people that no longer return your phone calls? (laughs) It's really interesting. I have I haven't had anyone who I've named contact me and say, how dare you, I'm furious at you. Um, I've had some people who were named in a really neutral or positive way say, wow, I'm really pleased that I was a male mentor or a female mentor in your career. So I think bouquets and brickbats where they're due. I'm not frightened of blowback. Indeed. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there which is very gritty. And I suppose, you know, one of the things that stood out for me is that you state that women in the media are often held to a different standard, obviously, than the men who maybe front the screens um, with a great emphasis on our appearance. Personally, I don't think a lot's changed. A lot of the women are very attractive on TV. I read in a recent media interview, you actually said, it's definitely worse in commercial media. I was told to stick my chest out more to show the audience my best assets. Why is this the case and who can we blame here? It's such an absurdity when you dig down on that because here I am on a news set talking to you about horrific stuff that's happening in, say, Syria or Iraq, and you've got superiors in the workplace telling me to stick my tits out more. I mean, there's an absurdity about that. It's almost comedic. I believe it's because there weren't proper workplace policies and procedures, particularly in commercial television. And by that, I mean, there's never been panel interviews to hire anybody. People were just hired based upon whether they turned on the executives or not. So really, women like me who have done journalism degrees and dreamed of going into this wonderful, exciting industry, were treated almost as blow-up dolls or playthings for the executives and then discarded when our currency um, fell, for example, when we become older. Yeah, exactly. We're all going to age at some point, although some people's forehead don't seem to move at all still on TV. It's (laughs) amazing. It's really interesting internalised misogyny there. I've spoken to a lot of women my age or older in the industry and they say, well, what am I supposed to do if I don't do this? I will lose my job. And do you know what? They will. So I'm not angry at women who uh, go along with the system. I understand why they feel that that's all they can do. It's not their fault. It's the the disempowerment that they experience within the workplace. Why don't we care what the blokes look like on TV? (laughs) 
because 98% of the executives are men. (laughs) And if they had 50-50 male and female executives and proper policies and procedures, then we would be giving the audience what they wanted. And by that I mean towards the end of my book I do a lot of deep research internationally on what audiences want and audiences don't want Barbie dolls on television. They want diversity, cultural, sexual diversity. They want to see themselves and people of different ages. They want to see grey-haired women on television and they're not being given that because of the imbalance uh, from a gender perspective and culturally at the very top. I guess TV is a visual medium and you, and you can, you know, understand it. Um, you know, wh- what needs to change? I mean, other than maybe having 50-50 representation in the executive rooms, I mean, do viewers themselves need to kind of write in and say, hang on, we've had enough of this, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed women on TV telling us about tragedies and um, doing it without a movement of wrinkle or face and obviously it being a size two. I mean, is that... Is that something we all need to partake in? It's an interesting question because the media reflects and shapes society. So you do have impact from audience members writing in, uh, but usually they'll write in because they're accustomed to seeing Barbie dolls on television with things like, oh, I don't like her hair tonight or what about the colour of her jacket because they've been accustomed to expecting this almost Hollywood look on set. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, to start a new conversation about, well, what do you really want to see on television? I know you get annoyed by the wrong colour jacket because it's not used to what you're seeing, but please contact the networks and tell us what you want. I would contend that audiences are telling the networks what they want by the fact that they're switching off. The media is fragmenting. PwC did a report three years ago saying the very future of commercial television is threatened unless executives listen to their audiences. Well, that's powerful. I know that uh, there was that a couple of years ago, Carl Stefanovic wore the same suit every day for a year on Channel 9 and uh, no one noticed. Yeah, because we are so accustomed to judging women on the way they look, which is if you look at the history of feminism, it's the very definition of objectification rather than judging men for what they look like on camera. So you're right, it'll need a movement from society, so really from below, from the audience and from above, from the executive. Well, you've definitely uh, started that that road for sure. (laughs) Um, So... Changing tack a little bit, your your road to motherhood was not a simple one and you're very candid about the fact you undertook IVF um, to conceive your firstborn, your son Taj, and he was born prematurely and then you had a daughter naturally a couple of years later. I mean, you must have felt at times that you had to choose between motherhood and a TV career. Was that the case? I've spoken to my mentor, Caroline Jones, about all this. She's in her 70s now, first woman on television current affairs in Australia, and she knew that there would be no way in that era that she could have both, so she chose her career. She didn't even think that she could choose to have a family, which is terribly sad. In my era, we've come a long way. We can have both. I didn't feel like I had to choose between the two, but I knew that it would be incredibly difficult to come back to work because all of my friends who had chosen to have children while having full-time jobs were either sidelined or sacked or told they couldn't have part-time or job share when they tried to get back into the workforce. I knew that it would be difficult. Obviously, it was important to you to do it anyway. Um, So having, you know, maybe had the first child, did you think maybe that you'd have to take a lesser job? I mean, what what did it mean for you? I didn't for a second um, believe that I deserve to be demoted after having a child. I know that happens to one in two women in all workplaces, but I thought 
you know, I've, I'm a journalist, I've done my research, I know there's legislation to protect us these days. So when they tried to do it so blatantly, you know, saying, oh, we'll get some younger presenters on the roster, you know, i.e. we're going to demote you to a lower paid, lower profile role, I guess I was shocked that they were so explicit about breaking the law in this area. It is, it's against the law for sure. And I guess not everyone can lay claim to being sacked by email while on maternity leave, but many women I know have been discriminated against in the workplace and that's whether in a corporate environment, whether they be work in the sporting field or even in small business. Why did you decide to take legal action when this happened to you? Because when I started doing my research on the legislation and the policies and the union regulations, I realised that it was something that wasn't spoken about in public conversations, something that wasn't covered enough in the newspapers. And I knew as a journalist I could amplify the voices of others by starting a national conversation. I thought, you know what, I'm a privileged middle-class white woman. I've got emotional support. I've been working for you know, almost 25 years at that stage, I had enough money to be able to take legal action. So I want to fight not just on behalf of myself, but for all women to give them, you know, a sense of sisterhood, a sense of courage and some advice about what they could do if this was happening to them. And what did it mean? What were the results for the audience who maybe haven't read your book as yet? Look, I was incredibly heartened but also saddened by the fact I received hundreds upon hundreds of emails from women but also from men saying the same thing happened to my wife, my daughter, my mother. I realised there was this tsunami of injustice out there and it was incredibly fulfilling to be able to give advice to these people to say, look, you can go here, you can go to the Human Rights Regional Opportunities Commission, you don't have to pay for a lawyer, this is what you can do to take a stand and the more of us that take a stand, the less likely bosses will be to do something like this. Did you worry you are going to be unhirable because you had made it such a public issue? Yeah, I just assumed I would never get a job in the industry again. And you know what? I didn't care about that. I just thought I want to take a stand. My mum had passed away by that stage, but I knew that would be what she would have wanted me to do. She was a very, very courageous woman, very tough. Um, but miraculously, uh, we settled out of court and I thought I'd never work again. And then I got a phone call from the boss at Sky News who said, we want working parents in here, men or women. You can work the shifts around your family. And that made me realise that even if you do take a stand and your name is blackened. <laughs> You're a whistleblower effectively. I mean, um, that's that's exactly yeah. right. You're a whistleblower. And that is a bit, a bit scary. But there are workplaces out there that will take a chance on you. And usually they're workplaces who understand that, you know, Parents deserve to be in the workforce as well. It's not the 1950s. So I found the right place for me at that time, and that place was Sky. Excellent. So moving again into something else that you're very passionate about, you talk a lot about your documentary and your humanitarian work, and it did take you some pretty full-on places for a white Australian woman, um, such as Uganda and PNG. How did you become involved in these kinds of projects and what did you learn about life? Because it is so different to what we do on the day-to-day basis in our middle-class lives, even going to a nice studio and, you know, getting your hair and makeup done and going on TV. It's kind of different going out to, you know, war-torn countries where there is a lot of suffering and there are a lot of issues that you're tackling. I was at dinner one night with a couple of camera operators and one of them said that he did filming with World Vision and we were talking about social justice and poverty and international aid 
And he said, oh, do you know what? He said, I think you'd be good, you know, going across doing some aid work and doing some documentary stuff with World Vision because you, your heart's obviously there. It's something that you want to do. It's not something that had occurred to me prior to that, to be honest with you. I'd never even been overseas. I grew up in a working-class area, you know, you don't do a lot of travelling. And so that's when I went to Bangladesh and then Kenya with World Vision. Then I went to Papua New Guinea with the Worldwide Fund for Nature and then Uganda with ActionAid amongst other places, um, either writing, producing or presenting documentaries. And it's been the thing I'm most proud of in my 30-year career, being able to go and predominantly because these documentaries are on the plight of women and girls, they're the, the worst treated in many societies, particularly in developing countries, and being able to share their stories and draw a link between the disempowerment that we feel, you know, first world problems and the kind of experiences of, say, women suffering domestic violence in Uganda. It was such a privilege to be able to connect with these amazing women. And as a result of that work, I mean, how did it change you when you came back? I mean, did you feel like you could, you know, did you put it in a silo or did you make it sort of something that you continued to kind of, you know, champion once you were back on the ground in Australia? Oh, yeah, I did my first trip about 24 years ago. So it's something that's run as a really, really powerful thread through my life and the stories I still share with my children who are age 10 and 12 now I'd really like to take them on an aid trip I think they're old enough for me to take them you know somewhere like Cambodia so they can understand the challenges experienced by our brothers and sisters overseas a lot of people think aid work is some kind of modern day imperialism or colonialism but I find that you learn you know, just as much from the people you're working with over there as they take from your, you know, our experiences from this end. I see it as a really incredible equal partnership to lift each other up. So what are you most passionate about now? I mean, obviously you've got your memoir, you do a lot of um, presenting work, still emceeing. What's next for Tracy Spicer? (laughs) I don't know. I just want to use the rest of my career to amplify the voices of other women and to make people aware of the structural discrimination in society and the workplace, giving them some tools to help break that down. Sometimes those tools are simply the language that we use. For example, I was talking to someone at a rape crisis centre the other day. Um, I'm an ambassador for this centre and I mentioned the sexual harassment I'd experienced during my career and she grabbed my hand and she said, you know what, we should call it for what it is and that's indecent assault. And she's right because if someone grabbed us in the street, that's what we'd call it, we'd go to the police, but inside the workplace it has a lesser language. So I want to work on practical solutions as well as language around what experience, what women experience. That sounds very powerful. I'm a big believer we never get to where we are on our own and you mentioned you had a mentor um, in the industry. Are there any other sort of figures in your life, obviously your mum was very special to you, that kind of keep you empowered, excited, passionate that sort of, I guess, um, get that fire in your belly so you can keep doing what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. All of my female friends, because they've all had different experiences and I get a whole bunch of strength and wisdom from them. But in particular, I'm involved with uh, Women in Media, a national mentoring and networking group. I'm the national convener of that. And I come in contact with so many women regularly like uh, Jenna Price, and uh, Wendy Harmer, who's always been a great mentor to me. Caroline Jones, as I mentioned earlier. Anita Jacoby, she's on our National Steering Committee. And they've all had incredible experiences, are very successful women and are very open about what they've experienced and sharing it with others. So through our mentoring program, you know, some of them mentor me and I mentor some younger women. It's a really nice chain of support. And is there anyone outside the industry that you sort of look to? Yeah. Do you know what? I I tend to look 
to working class women. I have a lot of friends who are in, you know, not certainly not jobs that you would perceive to be glamorous, for example, like the media, and they inspire me because they're there every day challenging not only the kind of stuff that me as a highly paid employee experienced, but the kind of stuff where, you know, they're single parents, they're trying to bring their kids up and they're experiencing discrimination probably 10 times worse than what I experienced. So seeing them navigate their way through it, that gives me an incredible fire in my belly to continue talking and fighting about this stuff. No, these conversations are very important. Just to wrap up, could you share your top tips for anyone else who might want to have a memoir published at some point? They say there's a book in all of us. Not all of us want to write fiction or nonfiction. We don't really know. What would you say would be your top tips if you are going to embark on this? My number one tip is uh, to make friends with the local barista or postie because I got so isolated in my house writing the memoir, you know. Was it the 12 months you mentioned? Yeah, and I started talking to the appliances, you know, the toaster had a particularly good line of conversation. And if it wasn't for being able to wander down the street and go to my local coffee shop or post office, I think I would have actually gone postal. So find someone to talk to to break up the periods of isolation because you can become quite trapped in your own head. No, that's a great tip. Well, I've uh, been, had a great conversation with Tracy Spicer. This is The Politics of Everything and I'm Amber Danes. Until next time, please keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests, so if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U, and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.